welcome to another episode of Murder, Myth, and Mystery. I am one of your hosts, Mary, and I am joined with Sarah. Hello. And Eric. Hello there. And we have the corgis and he who shall not be named yeah. rubbing up on Sarah. He's making sweet love to my oh. arm. <laughs> <laughs> he is all up on you, man. He's like, hey, baby. Oh, he's trying to show you the belly. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't touch the Do no, not fall for that no, trick. No, no, no. <laughs> I know better. <laughs> Oh, but his belly is the most magical oh. thing on the planet. Oh, oh he God. is. God, he's just, he's like, touch Uh-oh. it. Here come the, here come the <laughs> Now, now Peaches is getting all upset at him. <laughs> oh, hey. there's the other one. He was oh. sleeping in this corner bed. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, hey. So, Sarah, did you do a lemon pig? Yes, I did a last minute lemon pig. And it looked less like a lemon or a pig when I finished. But it was the idea that mattered, you know. How do you make a lemon not look like a lemon anymore? I'm that good. (laughs) No, it looked like a lemon pig. But it just, I wasn't super proud of it. So I didn't post it. I'm like a perfectionist. But it was super fun seeing everyone post all of their lemon pigs. So that was awesome, guys. It was so cool. There was tons of them. Yeah. It's such a fun little tradition, but that was awesome. So yeah, I had never heard of the lemon pig Me before. Either. I think it's such a great idea. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> some of them were just so funny that oh my gosh. They're, they're putting little quarters in there in the mm-hmm. mouth, or they're putting like two dollar bills. Yeah. Meredith, I think, put a two dollar <laughs> bill. Yeah, she, like, she had big. so many pictures of her lemon pig. She seemed to be pretty proud of it, which yeah. she should have. It was really no, cute. it was really cute, and she put so her good. little um college football logo on oh, it to bring them, thing, to bring them luck too i thought that was pretty funny yeah yeah um oh and it must I, have worked they won yeah i don't well i think it does work because one of our listeners jessica morgan said she did the lemon pig mm-hmm. and then two days later she got a job offer and is yes. like making three or four dollars more an hour than That's, what she had planned on yeah. what she was asking Amazing. for yeah yeah, so go lemon, lemon pig. Lemon pig, <laughs> as Emily says, because she didn't listen on time. She had to be put in the shame corner. Yeah, the shame corner. <laughs> shame, shame, shame. But yeah, no. The how'd you guys do on the other traditions? And we did really good. We did so good. We stayed up. Uh, yeah, which I did is this, an achievement. It's only been one year that oh. we haven't been able to. I was so tired at ten thirty. I was ready for bed. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> it was a struggle. <laughs> and then we watched Little little Hours. Oh, so bad. Horrible. Yeah. So bad. Okay. So don't watch that. I love the cast. The cast is the amazing. The movie was terrible, though. Yeah. I'm just totally forgetting about it. Aubrey it Plaza bad. and... Nick uh, Offerman, yeah. John C. Riley, Molly Shannon, oh, uh, Kate... Kate Micucci. Micucci, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Um, terrible. Oh, yeah. Fred Armistead. Oh, Armisen. Yeah. Armisen, yeah. Yeah. It, it all takes place like in a nunnery back in like the 1200s. Oh, or it feels like forced. That. It you feels know, but forced. They're like foul mouthed and whatever. But it's, wow. it's horrible. Yeah. But yeah, so I did the sweeping and then it was funny because I was like, what time is it? And he's like, it's 1140. What time is it? 1148. What time is it? 1152. Yeah. And what time is it? 1156. And then we're sitting there. I'm like, we hear fireworks. Yeah. I'm like, wait, what what time is it? He's like, it's 1202. We're like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much. I I blew it. Mary Mary swept before. Yeah, Yeah, I did that. 
Yeah. I said that. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, she sp- she did all this stuff, like, getting all excited. She brought me a the bunch of change. The underwear, the change. Yeah. I got cash. Mm-hmm. I did all of those things. I had the underwear on. I did. I brought Brett stuff to put in his pockets. I'm like, no empty pockets. And he did it. I was like, wow. Yeah. I expected a fight. He was we like, did, okay. I really wanted uh, chicken lettuce wraps on New Year's Day. Don't do but it. But we didn't no do chicken. it. No chicken. We didn't. No chicken. No, no, yeah. no. Oh, yeah. The funny thing is, is like, what day? Oh, it was the day before New Year's Eve. I think I wrote you like around 11 o'clock. I'm like, what color of underwear do I need to wear tomorrow? (laughs) And then I followed up with like best text ever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it was good. But no, it was good. That that was a fun episode. Yeah, it was funny. Um, Speaking of the new year, we thanked everyone for listening in the new year and sticking Mm -hmm. with us through last year's change and everything. Yep. I did mention that changes were coming, and the change with that is the minisodes will be changing. So instead of a normal recording and then a minisode on Thursday, you're actually only going to be getting two now. So if you're a patron, you'll still get two episodes a month. Or a week. I apologize. <laughs> How about this? Let me translate marionese here for you guys. I, it's so tough. Guys, thank you. We're doing the mini suds every other week. Boom. So basically one week we'll have a, uh, you know, we're doing the regular episodes every week. Yes. And the mini suds every other week. So. So Monday you'll still always have an episode, but Thursdays, one week you will, one week you won't. But for those of you that are patrons, that off week we will be posting our patron exclusive episodes. So you'll still have, the patrons will have an episode, uh, you know, an extra episode every week week mm-hmm. basically whether it's a patron episode or a mini-sode so yeah yep. uh speaking of the patrons we have a new patron yes yeah. i want to thank you so much to jc our thank newest ten dollar patron thank so you, JC. thank you oh, you so have access much. to those bonus episodes then <laughs> yes you do jc so and that what reminds me i want to talk to you guys about the patrons because about the patron program first of all thank you Thank you, thank you to all of you out there that are patrons. You have no idea how much that means to us that you guys are pledging in that program and supporting us. It's the only way that we make any money on this podcast. As you guys know, we don't have any advertising, uh, nor do we want advertising on this show. So it's the only kind of income that we have for this podcast. So thank you so much uh, for that. And I want to remind everybody that, as Mary mentioned, we do have the bonus episodes for the patrons, the exclusives on there. But there's also other perks that come with being a patron as well, uh, You know, depending on what level you're at. For those of you who, you know, we haven't really talked about it for a long time, I guess. So mm-hmm. the $1 patrons, of course, get a shout-out on the show. The $5 patrons get a thank-you card in addition to the shout-out. Stickers. And stickers and, and stuff, yeah. The bonus videos and the drink recipes with the corresponding episode. There you go. Yeah, and then the $10 ones get all the same things that everybody below them got. Uh, but they also get a, uh, a goodie bag uh, along with that. So and a little they get more the, swag. A little more swag, basically, mm-hmm. as well as they get to choose a patron uh, episode as well, mm-hmm. a mini soda of their choice, as long as it fits the mold and hasn't already been done. Mm-hmm. And then our $20 patrons, which we didn't ever think that we would need to have on there, <laughs> but people just went ahead and did it themselves. The $20 patrons also get all of the same stuff that everybody else got, but they also get a uh, choice of a t-shirt a cult member t-shirt or a tote bag 
So uh, also the ten dollars and up get the the Christmas cards and the Valentine cards. From yes, them, so. absolutely. So if you're not already a patron and you're thinking about it, you can always find out the information by going to our website at murdermythmystery.com, and you'll see a link on there, right there on the homepage. It says become a patron. So uh, we really, really, really do appreciate all of you that are that are doing that. First of all, we appreciate everybody just listening. Right, um, in 100%. general, you guys are amazing, and for um, sharing and reviewing. Oh, absolutely. And to that point, if you like, gosh, I don't know that I can, you know, afford to do the patron thing on there. That's totally understandable. Hey, I get it. Finances are tight all the way around, man. Um, I know. You know. I support four other podcasts. Yeah, it, it adds <laughs> up, man. It really does. And so I, I get it. I, I definitely get that. But if you still want to support us, maybe not financially, spread the word. Uh, put it on your yep. social media. I've seen so many of you doing it out there. And thank you. Thank you to, to all of you that have done that. Uh, you know, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever your you know mode of communication with the outside world happens to be. <laughs> whatever your pleasure. Skywriting. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the reason for the change um, for the formatting is we just haven't had time especially eric and i we're coming up on two years on this Mm -hmm. and i'm sure sarah can attest before she joined the show like we just never did anything you guys would be like hey come over and we're like no we can't we're researching oh yeah we're doing this or we're recording yeah something was always podcast related and it's come down to this is what we need to happen I've signed up to start volunteering downtown at the shelters, and I just need a little more free time. Yep. And Sarah has school and mm-hmm. a baby. Eric has, uh, you know. Nothing. No, that's <laughs> not true. He does editing for both my shows. He travels for work. Yeah, so he's got a big schedule, too. And it. we've talked to other people who host podcasts. Who hosts podcasts and it really comes down to like the money you're making is it worth your time and that's absolutely true we never expected to make anything when we started but now that we are um we do have an amount if we get to a lower amount that we will call it quits because then it's we'd rather be out and about and doing things mm-hmm. and enjoying life than sitting in a library or in our offices or at work on breaks or listening to things, trying to do research, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it so that's really the truth. Does. You know, we're very honest with you guys, but mm-hmm. that is the full on truth. Yeah. Yeah. We love doing this show. Absolutely. But to Mary's point, it, it is taxing. Mm-hmm. Re- it, the research t- is a lot. It's a lot of it, work. I mean, I, I spend at least eight to 12 hours every week. Same. Yeah. Um, yep. Doing research and writing and everything else. Yep. I mean, and if you have to throw in a documentary or something, oh, add oh, yeah. a couple more hours. Absolutely. Yep. It, it, it takes up a lot of time. And so we appreciate everybody's understanding with the cutting back on the mini soats. We really do. You know, and if you have any concerns or questions about it, you can always write us as well at murdermythmystery at gmail.com or just you know, DM us on Facebook or wherever. Post so. it. We'll yeah. answer your questions. Yeah. Um, last night, well, not last night. My days are all confused, too. <laughs> <laughs> on Friday night, I yes. took Sarah to a seance. She sure did. It was crazy. It was pretty cool. Yeah, we went with my friend Talia, uh-huh. who did Enough About You. And then we went with Larissa, Larissa who's done a couple guest She's done a bunch of them, yeah. Episodes with us and filled in for me before. But so what'd you think? It was amazing. Like, the whole... You know, I just... I didn't quite know what to expect going into it. 
And then once we got in there, just the whole vibe and the energy in the room and everything, it was really incredible. I was a little disappointed with some of the people's questions, and I won't really get into specifics. I was like, you're, you're talking to dead people who you're probably missing, and that's what you're going to ask them? Well, it, to add on to that, <clears throat> the questions that you're referring to that were ridiculous, like in yeah. our mindset, yeah. we're not just saying that because the people they contacted also called them out on that. Yeah, it was pretty funny. It was like, you're talking to me and this is what you're asking me. And so that was pretty validating. <laughs> but it was really, and it was an experience for sure. I would, I actually do want to go back, but it was super emotional and lots of people crying and oh my goodness see whereas i got to stay home and play with a pomeranian so yeah yeah i don't know i think i won little archikins yeah, yeah. talia's i don't know it was pretty cool yeah but it was way cool that pomeranian something else <laughs> he's oh so cute he's like eight months old and he's, he's so just adorable yeah tiny sled dog <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was it was pretty intense. So. Would you go again? Absolutely. Oh, okay. I'll set it up for February. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> and so. then real quick, uh, we received um, a package and we didn't know who it was. Make sure you guys send your name so we can give proper thank you. But this, yeah. this one came through Amazon in all yeah, fairness. It, but it's yeah. true. Thank you, Will. Uh, he sent us over the game uh, The Bloody Inn. Which Ooh. apparently is based on a true story, too. So it is. It's actually... Base. It takes place in France or based off of uh-huh. um, something that happened in France in like the 1830s where it was like a real life murders. Wow. Yeah, I'm excited and to play. I think we it was initially called time. like the Red Inn Affair. If you look it up, that's what oh, the game is based off of. I didn't get any research into it, but when Eric told me that it was based off of that, mm-hmm. the Red Inn, I knew what it was oh, that's like cool. referring to. So yeah, game night. Yeah. We have time Done. to plan a game night. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just plan it, but it's still there. The plan have, will be in place. The we have time to plan and execute oh, a game night. Well, all right. Speaking of murders. Let's talk murder, guys. Okay. Cool. So I am going to talk today about the Parker Holm murder case that happened in New Zealand. Ah, oh, the Kiwis. Are we going to get an accent to go with it? Oh, no. I would love to hear your New Zealand <laughs> No, accent. because it sounds just like my British accent. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling. That's, that's why I asked. <laughs> Crikey. No, I don't know. I'm, I'm done. No. I'm done. No. 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 Uh-uh. no. Whilst it is similar to the Australia accent, I know, it's it is not, a little unique. That, yeah. All you have to say is, piss off, ghost. That's what oh, I was going to Piss say. off, ghost. That's actually pretty good, <laughs> yeah, huh? Yeah. It's because Brett says it all the time. Yeah, it's from Thor. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. It's because it's so the director good. of the movies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's from... so good. <laughs> all right. Anyway, let's jump into this, you guys. All so right. it was a sunny winter's afternoon in Church Christ, New Zealand. Two teenage girls, 15-year-old Juliet Holm and 16-year-old Pauline Parker, went for a walk in Victoria Park, accompanied by Pauline's mother, Honora Parker. It was on this faithful walk that the girls put into action their plan to murder Honora. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well. The two friends has, had conspired to kill Pauline's mother, Honora, because they believed she would force them apart by not letting her daughter, Pauline, join Juliet who was about to leave the country with her parents. Uh, yeah. What? Yeah. That, that's a rock solid plan. Right. It's a little teenage angsty and 
because did they think this through? Like, okay, so now oh. that she's dead, now you can do whatever you want. Oh yeah, right? and I'll, I'll, I'll definitely get more into their, okay. their logic. So yeah. So on the afternoon of June twenty second, nineteen fifty four, and you'll remember I did say it's winter, but right, you know, mm. we're we're in New Zealand, so it's, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so June, you said right? Uh huh. Okay, yeah, well, New Zealand winter. Okay. So the girls lured Honora to Victoria Park. I mean, Lord is kind of strong, I guess, but they <laughs> got her there. They got a string and some cheese right? and they're pulling they're all, it along. Come on, mommy, dear. <laughs> that would get me. <laughs> I know, I'm all cheese. I know, what? I love cheese. <laughs> I think I'm like 90% cheese after the holidays, you guys. <laughs> it's not okay. I'm always 100% cheese. <laughs> I'm 90% cheese and 10% water. <laughs> anyway. I remember the old star where that would be 90% cheese and 10% alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we'll get back to so that So good point. for you. <laughs> So they lure this poor woman down a secluded path in Victoria Park, and suddenly Juliet drops a pink stone that she had been carrying. And when Honora bent down to pick it up, Pauline came up behind her and bashed her more than 20 times in the head with a stocking containing half a brick. Wow. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. And when the stocking broke, the girls held Honora down by the throat, face up on the ground, and took turns bludgeoning her to death with the brick. Jeez. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Honora's face and head were smashed almost beyond recognition. One detective who worked the case commented that Pauline's mother, quote unquote, had been attacked with an animal ferocity seldom seen in the most brutal murders. Oh, wow. Good. Wow. God. Mm. And how old were these girls again? 15 15. and 16. Wow. Mm. Okay. So the relationship between Juliet and Pauline was and still is a matter of inexhaustible fascination. At the time of the murder, Juliet was a few months short of her 16th birthday. She was tall for her age, slender, self-confident, and strikingly attractive. She spoke with a quote-unquote beautiful English accent, much like my own. (laughs) (laughs) Pauline, who liked to be called Paul was half a head shorter than Juliet with dark curly hair worn shorter than most girls. She was something of a misfit, less obviously attractive than Juliet with a permanent angry scowl. Resting bitch face, basically. Pretty yeah, much. Yeah. Yeah. Like, That's like, why are you looking at me? Hardy? No, I'm not. <laughs> Mary says this with resting bitch face. Right, yeah. <laughs> Pauline was flattered to be befriended by Juliet and soon fell under her spell. Their family backgrounds were different, too. Juliet's father, Dr. Henry Holm, was a brilliant nuclear physicist and served as a rector at Canterbury University College. The socially prominent Holmes lived in one of the finest houses in Christchurch. Juliet's mother, Hilda, was a well-groomed and attractive woman, but was also described as egotistical and somewhat irresponsible for a woman in her position. <laughs> Apparently, She's an uppity woman, basically. Well, yeah, and I was looking into that, and it kept talking about how she kind of, like, made bad 
basically i think she was kind of a loose lady and oh. cheated on her husband oh is what it seemed to imply but i just it was like all these weird implications and i was like I don't <laughs> we don't want to come out and say it yeah but... so <laughs> in contrast pauline's father bert was the manager of a fish shop and her ill-tempered careworn mother ran a cluttered boarding house in the inner city that was the home for pauline the girls had an obsessive interest in opera and the movies. By January 1954, they were writing novels such as Pauline's The Donkey Serenade and Juliet's The Beautiful Lady in Blue. I want to see this donkey <clears throat> serenade. Right? I want to read this. This sounds interesting. I'm intrigued. <laughs> right? They were convinced that they themselves were astoundingly good opera singers. They decided they must go to Hollywood someday where their novels could be made into movies and one or the other of them would marry James Mason and they would befriend Marilyn Monroe and Ava Gardner. <laughs> okay. So these girls were pretty imaginative. They're dreamers. They're dreamers yeah. for sure. Head in the clouds. All right. Soon, however, the best friends would be threatened with separation. Henry Holmes, so that's Juliet's father, mm. had resigned from his position at Canterbury University and was returning to England. He and Juliet's mother were getting a divorce, and it was decided that Juliet, who had been ill with tuberculosis the previous year, would be sent to stay with her aunt in South Africa, where the climate would be beneficial to her health. Wow, this family's just all over the world. Yeah. Like, Jeez. I'm going to go here, you're going to go there. Bye. Right. We're from England, living in New Zealand, right? but you're going to go live in South Africa. Yes. This is the best for everyone. Right. So both the parents encouraged the girls to believe that Pauline would be allowed to accompany Juliet to South Africa if her mother would permit it. So apparently that this, like... It, they were like, oh, if your mom will let you go, you're totally allowed to go with her. Yeah. Which I think is kind of a crappy thing for parents to do with... Yeah, that's... Yeah. Like, at least talk to the other parent before you start telling their kid. Yeah, that that's putting... Getting their hopes up a little bit. Right. Yeah. So, and Pauline, knowing her mother, knew this was never going to happen. It seemed clear that her mother was the only thing standing in the way of her future happiness. Uh-huh. The girls decided upon a plan that might look like an accident. By June 19th, it was a quote-unquote definite plan. One good blow on the back of the head, and Honora would fall dead. They would roll her body down the bank, and it would look as if she had fallen and hit her head. It was the perfect plan, right? Right. Except that they didn't quite understand how hard you have to hit somebody to kill them with one blow. Yeah. yeah. Well, no one who attended the scene of the murder even remotely thought it was an accident. <laughs> right. She beat to a bloody pulp, yeah. Right. So the girl's trial was a total sensation. Much of the evidence presented by witnesses focused on the close relationship between Parker and Holm, their absorption with each other, and their fantasies about becoming famous, famous novelists. There was where the truth came out that their parents, concerned that the girl's friendship had become obsessive and codependent, threatened to separate them and they had reacted violently uh-huh so parker and holm were found guilty and sentenced to indefinite imprisonment in separate prisons and ordered never to contact each other again however the girls were released free to start their new lives under new identities less than five and a half years later what yeah 
Wow. They in, brutally in no, beat this woman to death. In November of 1959, they were both released. That makes no sense. Well, they're that, young women. I mean, they have lives to yeah. get on to. They have <laughs> husbands to go find. And, and I'm assuming, especially with Juliet, since her parents were quite prominent and it seems uh, they were very well to do. A little connected. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was like, well, if we let her out, we got to let the other one out. Or I don't know. <laughs> it just it, I'm like, five and a half years. That's... That's ridiculous. That's nothing. Yeah. So it's like Venables and Thompson, though. Right. Same story, it's right? At eighteen, they were let out. Yeah. So it's mind blowing. Yeah. So each was given the new identity to help them make a fresh start, and both disappeared from the public view. In 1994, it was a tremendous news flash when an enterprising journalist discovered that the well-known crime novelist called Anne Perry, who lived in the Scottish Highlands, was in an earlier life. Juliet Holmes. <sighs> she oh. lived. She went yeah. on to to do her dream here, yeah. become a novelist. Yeah. She was, in fact, the schoolgirl murderer from New Zealand. Anne Perry had written a string of murder mysteries set in Victorian London, starting with *The Castor Street Hangman*, published in 1978. Her books gained a huge following, particularly in the United States and Germany, and she has reportedly sold more than 25 million books. Holy shit! Jeez. But she turned her life around. Yeah, well. She lived her dream. The discovery that Anne Perry wrote from personal experience as a murderer proved good for her sales as well. Of course it did. The fascination. Mm-hmm. Wow. Perry has given numerous interviews over the years promoting her books and has never shown much in the way of real remorse for the crime she committed. Man. In 2006, when Perry was asked by an interviewer if she ever thought back to the murder, her answer was, and this is a direct quote, no. I wouldn't torment myself that way. It just wouldn't help anyone. Wow. Uh They asked, did she ever think of her victim? And she said, no. She was somebody I barely knew. Um, Damn. Wow. It just makes me like sick to my stomach. Like, wow. You just don't care. No. Wow. literally got away with murder. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, she did serve five and a half years. That's not enough time. No. That's like a blip. I've had pimples last longer than that. <laughs> that you might want to get looked yeah, into. Yeah, you should probably yeah. go to a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind, it was a mole. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Pauline Parker, who became Hillary Nathan, now lives in a quiet or now lives a quiet and private life in northern Scotland, less than a hundred miles away from Anne Perry. I was gonna say they both ended mm-hmm. up in Scotland. The two women have no contact with each other, however, despite their relative closeness and proximity. The case remains one of New Zealand's most infamous murders and lives on in pop culture, having inspired a play, Michelani's Forrester's Daughters of Heaven, and Peter Jackson's Academy Award-nominated film, Heavenly Creatures. Yeah, that's... Oh! Yeah. I've heard of the movie. I haven't seen I've it. I've never seen it either. I haven't it seen either, it either, but yeah. It was so, a big deal, though. Yeah. yeah. That's my story. It's pretty wild. Dang! Yeah. Like... Seriously, like teenage girls terrify me. They're terrifying. <laughs> they should. Like my parents pissed me off, but never once was it like, okay, I'm gonna murder you with a brick and a sock now. Right? Like 
it's just uh... well on the patron episode the recent one we talked about hauntings Mm -hmm. and how teenage girls are you know there was no it's yeah yeah they're responsible for poltergeist Mm -hmm. and all that yeah so very interesting hormonal energy and Mm -hmm. yeah it's just it's wild to me crazy yeah good story though damn now i I need to go track down this movie i want to see the movie now oh i thought you were going to say the book i'm like no we're not supporting that no 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 no. i I need to watch i mean if i can find it free online maybe but peter jackson is a kiwi as well so yeah yeah, it makes sense it's it's wild damn wow good job Thanks, guys. All right. So, it's me, me, me. Mary. All right. Also, real quick, you guys, I realized we didn't mention when the changes were going to take place. Oh, yeah. So that's going to be starting. <laughs> important, kind of. That's going to be starting the first week of February for the mini-sodes. And again, we we all greatly appreciate your understanding. So. Yeah, thank you, guys. With that, I want to tell you about my myth. So there is a South Carolina term, and that is don't let the hag ride ya. Oh. <laughs> and that term comes from today's myth, which is all about the boo hags. And I've heard of these for a few years now, and I can't believe like it just dawned on me within this week to talk about them. Oh my god, I'm so excited to hear this. <laughs> don't let the hag ride ya. Don't let the hag. De hag. De hag. Uh, so what are boo hags, right? right? Well, they are skinless beings that yeah. creep into people's homes, climb up on their chests for a ride, and gain vitality by sucking out your breath. Wow. They also have a little nasty habit of just tearing off the victim's skin and wearing it for themselves. Oh, perfect. Well, they don't have any skin. And they, right. I mean, it makes But sense. usually, you guys, usually, they'll just leave you short of breath. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Good. Okay. Unless you're just that lucky person who loses your skin. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I guess lucky. Ooh. Now the boo hag is from the Gaul, uh, Geechee, and also known as the Sea Island Creole culture. All right. Mm. Wow, um, that's a whole lot of crazy yeah. words. But all right. Well, it, well, it's primarily Gaula, but uh, it's also known as Geechee. But it's also known as Sea Island Creole. So, <laughs> so just thank you for said, explaining. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure you all weren't thinking it was one big long. No, thing. yeah, we're totally not okay. confused now. So that's fine. Anyways, um, a little background quickly on the Gola. It was developed in the rice fields during the 18th century as a result of contact between the colonial varieties of English and the languages of African slaves. These Africans and their descents created this new language in response to their own linguistic diversity. So very interesting. Now, as the legend goes, the boo hags are very similar to vampires. Although they don't need to be invited into your home, instead they can come through any teeny crevice, such as a keyhole, or under your door if there's like a gap. (laughs) Now, remember I said instead of sucking the blood from their victim, they suck the breath out of them? So the boo hag will make her way up to the victim's room. She will climb up on them and position herself over the sleeping victim and then holds them down and begins to suck their breath right out of them. Now, while she is on the victim, they're rendered helpless, okay? They can't do anything, and they're pretty much in a dream state, which I'm going to get back to 
later on. If a victim struggles, instead of leaving them without any energy or shortness of breath, she's going to strip their skin and use it as her home, you know, Mm -hmm. and she may move around as you or she might move to a different area. Interesting. So like no one recognizes her. Now, there is a way to protect yourself from her entering your home. If you lay a straw broom by your bed, this will distract her as she has to count the straw. And by the time she gets done, the sun will be rising and she has to leave. So again, kind of like a vampire where they can't be out in day unless they're using someone's skin. Okay. Right. It, it's crazy how common that is. Like, mm-hmm. carry rice with you and spill the rice because they have to count the yeah. rice yeah. or spaghetti noodles or mm-hmm. whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. The colander. The colander. Yeah. Yeah. Count the holes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now the folklore I heard about them many, many moons ago was about two best friends who were married to two beautiful women. However, months after the marriage, the one friend asked the other, when you wake up at night, is your wife in bed with you? <laughs> Common question, I, I feel like. So I, I couldn't find the story, so I'm just going to go off of memory. But the, the friend was like, yes, of course. Like, why do you ask, right? As any friend would. So he went on to explain that he and his wife would go to bed. But sometimes when he would wake up in the middle of the night, he would roll over and she was gone. Hmm. But every time he woke up in the morning, she was back. Okay. So a little interesting, okay? Yeah. They came up with a plan to see what was going on as the friend thought she might be a boo hag. Mm-hmm. So they went to bed. The husband woke when she left. And uh, so when he when she left, he went through the house to look for her skin because they shed it at the house. That's mm-hmm. their protective ground, right? So when he found the skin, he covered it with salt and pepper and like rubbed it into the skin. This is a way of preventing her from getting back into it. Oh. So then he went back upstairs and went to bed and waited, right? Then he heard her come home and he heard from downstairs her say, skin, skin, you know me, skin, skin, this is me, skin, skin, you know me, skin, skin, this is me. She said it multiple times, and then he started hearing her walk back upstairs. So she got into bed, and after a few minutes, he, like, reached over and held her hand, but he noticed it was warm, sticky, and felt like meat. When morning came, he tried to get her out of bed, and she just wasn't having it, right? She was covered head to toes in blankets and sheets Mm -hmm. and said she wasn't feeling well. So the husband was like, oh, okay, I'm just going to go do some, I'll have to make my own breakfast. (laughs) And then he went and did some gardening. (laughs) Worst day ever. I know, right? (laughs) Anyway, so the husband like went out and did like his hoeing. (laughs) Like they do. I know. He went out and did some gardening work, which is hoeing. His hoeing. But again, he heard from the bedroom window, his wife, you know, doing her little chant well that was it right that was the final draw he went and fetched his best friend and they went and got the local conjure man which is um a medicine man Mm -hmm. so they boiled some tar and then they went upstairs and they pulled the blankets off the wife and there she was bloody and raw (laughs) so the conjure man yelled uh you married a boo hag (laughs) 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 <laughs> I remember that part of the 
story because it always made me laugh because it was like all caps and everything. Um, but anyway, so they threw the tar on her and then it just like kind of boiled her alive. This hot tar. Oh. Well, that's murder. Well, it's a boo hat. It's a boo different. Hat. It's still murder. <laughs> it is murdering Look a boo hat. That's sensitive. correct. <laughs> oh, it connects to the boo hat. I do. I get it. So, as I've always said, there's truth into a myth. And this particular one could explain uh, sleep paralysis, uh-huh. right? Right. Or it could also explain uh, a cheating wife. Yeah. <laughs> My wife is gone in the middle so of the night. So, she's a boo hag. gone sometimes? So, we need to kill her. Wow. Damn. She's a boo hag. Yeah. No, I, I just, didn't kill her because she was cheating on me. I killed her because she was a boo hag. I love those stories. It's just so fun. Yeah, yeah that was that was pretty crazy. And I didn't mean to say, I know I said medicine man. I went to... I, Shaman? No, 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 no. Witch doctor. Oh. The uh, conjure man is also a witch, a witch doctor. doctor is their other term. Gotcha. Very cool. That's a great yeah, story. Yeah, so there it is. There's the boo hag. Boo hag. So sleep, if you're concerned, like put a broom by your bed. Don't let the boo hag ride you. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's fun. So like, I, I wish I could, if I can find that little story, I'll have to post it because yeah. it's short, it's funny, but it's just like the terms that they had used back in the day, you know. Oh, yeah. And, you but, married a boo hag. You married a boo hag. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, it was great. So there it is. Mystery? That would be me. What do we got? All right. I've been hearing about this for a week now. <sighs> I hope it turns out okay. All right. <laughs> I'm a little excited. nervous. All right. This is a first for Eric. I know. I know. Life is infinitely stranger than anything which the mind of man could invent. We would not dare to conceive the things which are really mere commonplaces of existence. If we could fly out of that window hand in hand... Hover over this great city, gently remove the roofs, and peep in at the queer things which are going on, the strange coincidences, the plannings, the cross-purposes, the wonderful chains of events working through generations and leading to the most outre results. It would make all fiction with its conventionalities and foreseen conclusion most stale and unprofitable. That is a quote by the fictional character Sherlock Holmes in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's book, A Case of Identity. It's basically a fancy way of saying that truth is stranger than fiction. And while it's not always the case, the story I'm about to tell certainly fits that mold. On the evening of March 26, 2004, Priscilla West tried to phone her brother, Richard Lancelin Green. Richard's behavior had been erratic as of late, and he was convinced that an American was trying to kill him. There was no answer, and the call went to his answering machine. However, instead of Richard's cheerfully British voice explaining that he couldn't come to the phone, she heard an American asking the same favor. This deeply troubled Priscilla. Richard had the same outgoing message on his machine for a decade now. She continued to try to call him throughout the night, and by the next morning... She was now fearful for her brother. She called the police and explained that she was worried about her brother, as he was not one to let the phone go to the machine. When they went to his apartment, they found that both the front door as well as Richard's bedroom door were locked from the inside. Once they were able to enter the bedroom, they found Richard's body laying on his bed face down next to a half-empty bottle of gin. 
He had been garroted with a black shoelace and a wooden spoon. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with that term, the act of garroting someone means to take something like a wire and wrapping around the victim's neck, then using a lever of some sort to twist the wire, when the, which then tightens around the neck, choking them. Mm-hmm. It was an unusual way to die, and under unusual circumstances as well. If the doors were all locked from the inside, how did this happen? While technically possible to commit suicide via garroting, it is extremely difficult because most people pass out before being able to tighten the device, which is, of course, behind him. This is the kind of case for a detective with the skills of Sherlock Holmes. Surely the police could reach out to the foremost expert on the fictional detective for assistance. The only problem was (laughs) they were looking at him. Oh. Oh. The story I'm about to tell has all the makings of Holmes and Watson tales. Twists, logic, and mysterious death, and the late Sir Arthur Conan Doyle himself. As Holmes was keen on saying, the game is afoot. Ooh. Richard Lancelin Green was born in Bebbington, Cheshire, England on July 10th, 1953. His father was an author who adapted classic tales into children's books, and his mother was a drama teacher. He came from a long line of nobility, and Poulton Hall, the estate that he grew up in, had been passed down in the Lancelin Green family since the 11th century. Though by the time he was growing up, the family finances weren't quite what they once were. Still, though, with parents like those two, Richard's imagination was able to run free with a huge personal library at his disposal. When he was about 11 years old, Richard's father introduced him to the world of Sherlock Holmes, and his life would be forever changed. He quickly read through all four novels, as well as the 56 short stories that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had written about the famed detective. Once he had accomplished this task, he did the whole thing again. Richard was a very logical child, and blessed with a fantastic memory, much like the detective himself. At 13 years old, Richard hit up as many yard sales as he possibly could, He would purchase all sorts of odds and ends and take them up to the attic, where he painstakingly arranged them. He had a Persian slipper stuffed with tobacco, a stack of unpaid bills pinned to the mantle with a knife, a box of pills labeled as poison, (laughs) empty ammunition cartridges and painted on bullet holes in the walls. There was a taxidermized snake, a brass microscope, and an invitation to the gas fitter's ball. On the door outside, the attic was the final touch. A sign that simply stated, Baker Street. Uh. He had successfully recreated the apartment shared by Holmes and Watson. Wow. It also helped that the stairway leading to the attic had 17 stairs, the same number as the fictional apartment Uh at 221B Baker Street. News of his handiwork spread, and Sherlock Holmes aficionados from around the country came to see it for themselves. Richard was soon the youngest person ever inducted into the Sherlock Holmes Society of London. These guys are the original cosplayers. They dress up in period clothing for their meetings and take it all very seriously. (laughs) He also joined a club called the Baker Street Irregulars. They were named after the street kids in the stories that would supply homes with information. Both of these groups practiced what they called the great game. What that meant was that they treated the stories as though Sherlock Holmes was a real person Mm -hmm. and that the books were being written by Watson as a first-person account. Mm -hmm. Conan Doyle was just their literary agent. The game consisted of trying to explain away inconsistencies in the books using logic, much like the detective would practice. 
basically just a bunch of fanboys coming up with their own theories. Mm -hmm. After graduating from Oxford University in 1975, Richard began to shift his focus from Holmes to the author himself, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He wanted to know what made the man tick. First, he began compiling a collection of Conan Doyle's writings. This wasn't just his books and short stories, mind you. This was any and all notes that he had took as well. This meant traveling to Edinburgh, where Conan Doyle grew up, and visiting the areas that he frequented. With the help of another Sherlockian named John Gibson, he published a bibliography in 1983 to much fanfare. This was followed by lectures about Conan Doyle and the stories themselves, but his real goal was to write a true biography about the author. Through his research, he found that Conan Doyle had much in common with the great detective. For one, he was incredibly logical, so much so that he disavowed his Catholic faith because he vowed in his words, never will I accept anything which cannot be proved to me. And second, both Holmes and Conan Doyle were extremely private. It was this privacy that proved to be the biggest obstacle in writing the biography. But there was hope. Richard's hunt for more information led him to Dame Jean Conan Doyle, Arthur's youngest daughter. The Conan Doyle children had always been leery of biographers, and some in the past had shed their father in a not-so-good light. But Dame Jean immediately took to Richard. She could see the love and passion for her father's work in his eyes. The two hit it off, and she would share memories of her father and family photographs and the such. On one of his subsequent visits to Dame Jean's apartment, she surprised Richard by showing him some boxes that she had been keeping with her attorney. When he peered inside, he was shocked to see that the boxes contained something that Conan Doyle biographers had been searching for since his death in 1930. A massive archive of his letters, manuscripts, and diary entries. It was known that these had existed, but most had feared that they had been destroyed or discarded. But sitting in Dame Jean's living room was proof that they did exist, and that it was the Holy Grail for Richard. This archive is the stuff of legend in and of itself. Shortly after the death of Arthur Conan Doyle, the four living children all agreed that it should be stashed away someplace safe. One of the sons, Adrian, agreed to lock them in his Swiss chateau. Adrian had other motives, though. He grabbed a bunch of the documents and tried to sell them off for some quick cash. But he suffered a heart attack that killed him before his plan could come to fruition. This gave rise to a rumor that the archive was cursed. After Adrian's death, the papers seemed to vanish. There were rumors of one relative or another having the archive at any given time, but nobody could prove it, and it caused a major rift in the family. She explained that she couldn't let him go through them due to a family dispute, but that she intended to donate them to the British Library upon her death. Their friendship continued over the next few years. That is, at least, until she started distancing herself from Richard. It wasn't anything that either of them did, per se, but rather someone that came between them. The American. Mm. He's always referred to as the American because his identity has to remain secret thanks to his employment at the Pentagon as a high-ranking official dealing with clandestine operations. So, you know, not shady at all. Not at all. No. Richard and the American met back in the 80s when the pair collaborated on several research projects about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. They were both members of the Baker Street Irregulars, and Richard's reputation of being the leading expert on Conan Doyle preceded him. The American had reached out to Richard for help with his own project, and this led to several more collaborations during the mid to late 1980s. 
But by the early 1990s, the Americans started poisoning the name of Richard whenever he was around Dame Jean. Just little things that he knew she could possibly be sensitive about. He would twist Richard's words so that they could be misconstrued. Once she had eliminated Richard from her life, the American was more than happy to be her new confidant. Arthur Conan Doyle had grown weary of his protagonist. Constantly trying to outsmart a potential reader was taxing mentally and emotionally, which is why just six years after he introduced Holmes to the world, he killed him off in an epic showdown with his arch-nemesis, Moriarty, in which the pair tumble off a platform and over a mountain waterfall in Switzerland. The public was outraged. They even mourned for the death of the sweet Sherlock. Over the coming years, Conan Doyle was constantly bombarded with requests to resurrect Holmes. Finally, eight years after killing him off, he brought him back with a rather weak explanation that Holmes didn't actually fall off the platform, but had grabbed onto a beam at the last minute. (laughs) Still, the specter of Sherlock would have to be in his mind even longer than he had hoped. As Conan Doyle grew older, he found a new passion, one that seemed so very contradictory to his stance on logic. He became obsessed with psychics and spiritualism. He had attended a seance in which he was able to talk to his son who had died during World War I and was completely sold that what he was experiencing was very real and the fairies are too. Yep, he was enamored with finding real fairies, particularly after seeing the famous photograph of two girls sitting in a glen with a few fairies around them, even though one of the girls in the picture admitted that it was faked. Conan Doyle still believed them to be real. It's a very famous picture. I'm sure that uh, some of you out there have seen it before. Mm -hmm. When Dame Jean died in 1997, Richard had mixed emotions. He was sad for the loss of someone that had been quite dear to him, but excited to finally be able to read the archive. So he waited and waited and waited until it became evident that they weren't going to show up at the museum. After doing some digging, it turns out that nobody knew where they were. The archive was missing yet again. Oh, man. man. This infuriated Richard. With a bitter taste in his mouth, he started taking out his frustrations on Arthur Conan Doyle. When his research led to the discovery of Conan Doyle's love of psychics and fairies, Richard felt betrayed. He felt that the man who he had dedicated his life's work to was a complete fraud and hypocrite. How can he be a man of logic and yet believe in fairies? He even went so far as to make accusations in public that Conan Doyle had been unfaithful to his wife. He would eventually calm down from this point of outrage and focus on the side of the man that had brought him so much joy. Then it happened. In early 2004, Christie's Auction House announced that they would be holding an auction for the long-lost Conan Doyle archive that coming May. It was expected to fetch a few million dollars. Mm -hmm. This pissed Richard off in a major way. (laughs) This collection was supposed to be in the British Museum, not, as it turns out, in the hands of a few of Conan Doyle's distant relatives. He immediately reached out to Christie's and tried to get the auction canceled, explaining that Dame Jean had wanted them to be gifted to the British Museum. Other scholars of Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes also came to his aid. In their eyes, it was preposterous that these artifacts are not in a museum, but the auction house held their ground, claiming that they were able to verify that the current owners of the materials were indeed the rightful owners. In the months leading up to the auction, Richard became more and more agitated, telling friends that an American was out to get him. When he found out that the American would be in London for the auction, 
This sent Richard into a whirlwind of emotions. He kept digging for proof that they belonged in the museum rather than private hands. When he asked friends to help him find evidence that the family had wanted it to go to the museum, his friends were more than happy to assist. But when they came back without the results he had hoped for, he accused them of being out to get him. As the date of the auction grew closer, Richard's paranoia became worse. He openly told friends and family members that he feared for his life and that the American was still following him. This all came to a head on that fateful morning of March 27th when Richard was found dead in his apartment. When the police found him, they assumed that it was a suicide since there were no signs of forced entry and there was a half-drank bottle of gin. There was no suicide note, though. Thus, they treated the scene like a suicide and contaminated any evidence to the contrary. So was it a suicide or was it a murder? Well, first we have the mode of death. As I mentioned earlier, garroting oneself to death is extremely difficult. By all accounts, Richard Lancelin Green was a rather happy-go-lucky guy and not at all depressed. Paranoid lately? Definitely, but not depressed. Plus, he was garroted with a black shoelace. Richard only wore slip-on shoes. Richard was also somewhat of an enophile, meaning that he was a bit snobby about drinking wine. He followed very strict rules about what to eat or drink after you've had some wine. When he spoke to a friend by phone on the evening of his death, he mentioned that he was having some wine to relax. There is no way that he would follow that up with gin. Then there's the outgoing message on the answering machine. This puzzled everyone involved for some time until somebody figured out that it was a machine made in America, and the voice that they were hearing was the pre-programmed message. Still, why did he remove his own outgoing message? So now let's flip the script a bit. Is it possible that he set everything up in such a way as to make his suicide look like a murder? We are talking about a man that knew every Sherlock Holmes story inside and out. In the book, The Problem with Thor Bridge, a wife is found lying dead on a bridge, shot in the head at point-blank rage. All the evidence points to one suspect, the governess, with whom the husband had been flirting. Yet Holmes shows that the wife had not been killed by anyone. Rather, enraged by jealousy over her husband's illicit overtures to the governess, she had killed herself and framed the woman whom she blamed for her misery. Mm, thinking. Yeah. (laughs) Richard was so mad about the auction that he might just have taken drastic measures in order to pass the judgment on to someone else, like the American. He could have felt that life wasn't fair anymore and came to terms with the idea of not being a part of this world. But if he was to do it, he was going to take his own personal Moriarty out with him. If this is the case, this plan would have taken days to set up with all of the calls to family members and friends telling them that he was being followed and that he feared for his life. Richard had willed his collection of Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes materials to a library in Portsmouth because, as his sister said, he really did not like the idea of scholarship being put second to greed. The collection was so vast that it took two weeks and 12 truckloads to haul it away. Wow. It was estimated to be worth far more than the Conan Doyle archive being auctioned. Speaking of the auction, it still took place that following May, and most of the materials were in fact purchased by the British Museum. So Richard could have done his research after all. As to the official details on Richard Lancelin Green's death, the coroner left it open as he was not able to determine if it was suicide or murder. The case is still open today. 
I don't know if it'll ever be solved. But as Sherlock Holmes once told Watson, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Ooh, good story. So good. Thank you. What do you think? I don't know. I don't know either. I think suicide. <laughs> like that, like I said, I mean, the coroner, which was a major coroner in London area, mm-hmm. had only seen one successful suicide by Garroting. Interesting. Uh, because, like I mentioned, everybody passes, passes out, out yeah, yeah. Uh, before they're able to you know, successfully complete yeah. it. So, but... Yeah, I mean, it's very elaborate if it is a suicide. Yeah. You know? Or the American. Yeah, it could be the... I mean, he's a high-ranking official, you know, working on clandestine operations in the Pentagon. Hmm. Yeah. This has so many little parts to it and pieces yeah. to it that are just very Sherlockian. Yeah. Yeah. So good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and he ended up living this life almost like Conan Doyle, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of going down a path into madness, yeah. you know, and he just... It's crazy. It yeah. just mirrored him. Yeah. Wow. His hero. His yeah. apartment was, was covered in Conan Doyle stuff. All the walls mm-hmm. were like completely covered. Like you might think if you, if you didn't know the guy, you would think that right. he would just had this like a sick obsession, yeah. right? But I mean, he just was... He was obsessed with the man, but in a scholarly way, you wow. know. But yeah, yeah, very, wow. very bizarre story. Yeah, mm-hmm. unsettling. Yeah, so good though. Thank it was you. Really good. Good Thank job. You. So that's our episode this week, everybody. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Yes, thank you as Thanks, always. You yes, and again, as a reminder, as Mary pointed out a little ways into our episode there, those changes with the minisodes and all that will be happening February, the beginning of February. So yep. um, still count on your minisodes every week this uh, for the month of January. So again, thank you very much, everybody. Say goodbye, girls. Bye. Bye. Bye.